All right, and we should be live now. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. Uh, welcoming you here for a special live discussion today. We're going to be talking about the current state of nuclear energy, and there's some big news on that front that's been hitting headlines recently. We're fortunate to be discussing that with the publisher of the uh, investing newsletter, Uranium Insider. Um, that's Justin Hewn, who I'm adding right here to the screen. Hey, Justin, how are you? Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Doing great. Happy to be here. Thanks, Adam. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I know it's a little early your time on uh, the West Coast, uh, to where I live too, but I'm kind of used to doing interviews at this time. I appreciate you getting up with the sun with us here to do this. Oh, I've been up for a while. We had Cameco's conference call this morning at 5.30 a.m. my time, so hence the bags under my eyes, but uh, happy to be here either way. Okay. Um, well, look, uh, we'll get into the specifics in a moment, but I, I guess I am curious. Is there anything notable about sort of the industry uh, itself that came up on the, the Cameco call? Um, I, I think it was kind of run-of-the-mill bullishness coming from the Cameco guys. Um, a lot of what they stated, I think, was already priced into the market um, and into the stock as well. Um, term contracting definitely slowed down a little bit during the summer after a very strong start to the year. Um, they and we expect that to pick up a bit towards uh, in the last few months of the year, which is typically a very strong season for uranium. Um, as far as the industry goes, you know, everything just continues to move forward in a, in a very, very bullish manner. Um, there's huge new builds announced in Canada where Cameco is operating um, from Bruce Power. They're expanding, um, expanding with four new large, uh, large candy reactors, as well as uh, quadrupling the initial SMR build at Darlington. They're going from one unit to four units. And uh, it's just the demand picture looks incredibly robust and continues to improve. And they highlighted that in this call. And there's some, a couple of other details from the call I think are, are noteworthy. But as far as the industry goes, you know, it's, it's just really, um, you know, I, I tweeted out yesterday and the thesis really can be very, very simple, which essentially is demand is predictable. It's stable. It's growing. Supply, on the other hand, is in question and is quite fragile. And so that, that picture continues to, uh, continues to reiterate, I suppose, with each passing, almost each passing day, each passing week, week, each passing month, the demand picture gets better and better and better. The supply side um, doesn't seem to be improving all that much. All right. Well, let's let's dig into both of those sides then. And folks as well, um, because we're doing this live, uh, I'll reserve time here, hopefully in the second half of this discussion, to take uh, questions live uh, from the live chat here. So um, as Justin and I are talking here, if you have questions, um, please start putting them in that live chat. And when we get to the uh, Q&A part, I'll mine that for, for questions to surface to Justin here. Um, all right. But Justin, maybe um, before we get into the, the, the real detailed questions, if you could just kind of give us an overview of the industry right now, why uh, you're so optimistic about it. And when we were setting up this call, I heard, uh, if I heard you correctly, I think I heard you say you're perhaps maybe the, you're very bullish and maybe perhaps the most bullish you've ever been about the prospects for um, uranium related stocks. So um, as we kind of go through this overview of both the demand and the supply side, if you can kind of weave in why you think this current environment is, is making you so optimistic, that would be really helpful. So let, let's just sort of start with, with at a very high level, like what's the current state of nuclear energy right now? Um, you know, it was, kind of reviled for a long time over the past couple of decades, I'd say. Um, but 
but now it seems the pendulum is swinging back where people are, governments are beginning to realize increasingly, hey, we need this fuel source. It's, it's not something that, that we want to fully decommission. In fact, we may want to be investing more in it. So what's causing this pendulum shift, if I'm assessing that right? I would say the, the main drivers of this pendulum shift are um, a focus on clean energy. So um, actually recognizing nuclear for what it is in terms of emissions, which is essentially zero. Um, so finally, it's, it's getting its day in the sun, even though it's been a zero emission baseload energy source forever. Finally, now, uh, I suppose the climate panic has reached such a, a, a certain level of chorus that all, all mechanisms that can decarbonize are being supported. Um, you know, over the past number of years, we've had, we have, we've had increasingly alarming rhetoric, uh, primarily coming from the environmental left around climate, around carbon emissions. And we had, you know, statements like, you know, in 2020 statements, like we have 10 years left basically before uh, the carbon in the atmosphere reaches levels that will cause basically mass extinction and, and the demise of the human species essentially is what they're saying. Also no nuclear. And they got a lot of pushback from that, from the Michael Schellenbergers of the world and the, and the nuclear advocates that are uh, seemingly growing in number and and finally, you know, that that sort of rhetoric is kind of reversed. And we're even seeing the environmental left, even in the United States, start to embrace nuclear. Nuclear support in the United States is now a bipartisan issue. Um, the passing of the Inflation Reduction Act last year with the inclusion of clean energy production, clean energy investment tax credits that nuclear qualifies for is evidence of that. So it's it's so the first the first part of that is a focus on decarbonization. So most countries in the world have quote unquote, net zero goals or decarbonization goals that they're trying to reach. And, uh, and nuclear fits the bill, um, of course, for those goals. I would say the second element has to do with um, security of energy. So, uh, and this, this has been highlighted over the past 18 to 24 months with situation in Ukraine, with Russia cutting off, largely cutting off energy supplies to Europe and a recognition that if you have a nuclear plant on your soil and you've got a few years of fuel stored, you have an unbelievably secure source of energy for your populace. And that's not something that can be weaponized, um, at least not in the short term. Of course, you know, Russia controlling a large, uh, they're the biggest player in conversion and enrichment. So it's creating some hiccups in the fuel cycle currently that are uh, being attempted to be addressed in the West. But um, security of energy is a, is a major, major thing. And we're seeing Japan, for example, um, start to accelerate their restart. So they just restarted a reactor last week. That's the first one that they've restarted in the last two years. There's two more on the block to be restarted within the next six to 12 months. And those are boiling water reactors. Thus far, all the reactors restarted in light water reactors. So hopefully that sets the stage for more BWRs to be restarted. Uh, but Japan, of course, doesn't have a massive you know, resource of, of energy supply. So they import a lot, of, uh, a lot of coal, a lot of oil, a lot of natural gas, and they, of course, import uranium, but they can they can store enough, um, you know, enriched uranium and fabricated fuel in, in a couple of large warehouses to power the country for multiple years. And, and they, they understand that, which is why they're accelerating the restarts. They're even looking at government subsidies to support um, accelerating these restarts. So clean energy, energy security, I would say, are the, are the primary drivers of this nuclear resurgence. Okay. And, and for folks that may not know, um, and we're, we're kind of touching on topics that you and I have talked about in depth in your prior appearance on this show. So I'm not going to rehash all the discussions just sure. in the interest of time. But um, Japan, 
uh, very famously shut down its nuclear reactors, uh, its fleet of nuclear reactors following the Fukushima disaster. Um, but it has, and correct me if this is not correct, but I, I believe they have publicly announced that they are bringing, in the process of bringing all of them back online. Um, so not for, quite, uh, not quite, not but quite? Um, okay. yeah. So, so they had 54 reactors up and running prior to the Fukushima Daiichi accident and they shut all of them down. Uh, thus far, they have restarted 11 of the, I think that there's 33 that are operable. So that means about 20 have been permanently shut down that won't be restarted. Um, so of those 33 that are operable, 11 have been restarted, and they have a goal of reaching 20 to 22% nuclear as a percentage of their overall grid by 2030. And that would mean basically all of the operable, those 33 operable being restarted in the next, let's say, six and a half years. Okay, so so they're planning to reopen all the ones that can be reopened, more or less. Yes. Okay, great. So the the purpose of that being is is the country that has the most recent sort of nuclear incident that you would think would be the most cautious about nuclear energy has said, "Hey, we're comfortable enough with it that we're leaning back into it." Pretty much, yeah. And you know, the 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 population in Japan is in majority in support of restarting nuclear. And even looking at new nuclear builds, and there's a number of Japanese utilities that are looking into new builds and SMRs and some advanced nuclear designs as well. Um, and they have been and probably will continue to be a very cautious people. Um, that's just kind of their nature culturally. And, and the restarts have been slow thus far. Will they hit that goal? I don't know. But they understand, um, you know, they understand the relative safety. They understand the importance of that energy security and the clean energy element of it. And so they're moving in that direction. Okay. Um, so again, staying on the energy security side for a second here. Um, uh, obviously, if you are producing nuclear energy domestically, uh, you're less reliant on you know, fossil fuels from other foreign nations that you might have tenuous alliances with. In terms of the, the uranium supply that we use to generate the nuclear energy in our reactors, uh, how, does, how, is the, how well is the U.S. positioned to supply its own uh, uranium itself domestically or from close friendlies? It's in a decent position, um, the, although the mining industry, the uranium mining industry has, has basically contracted to almost zero production. Uh, there's plenty of uranium in the ground in the United States. And in most places, really, there's a decent amount of uranium. But the geology in the United States is particularly favorable. There's, you know, I mean, most people don't know this, but there's a USGS uh, the United States Geological Survey, a study done in the 90s based on the Arizona Strip. This is an, a small area kind of north, uh, right around the Grand Canyon area, where they estimated there was a billion pounds of uranium in the ground, just in the Arizona Strip. We have uh, decently high grades ISR amenable deposits in Wyoming. There's uh, a, a decent amount of uranium in Texas, um, in a couple of other areas across the country. So there's there's plenty of uranium supply to produce, let's say, five to 10 million pounds a year. Now we need way more than that. Do I think we'll reach those levels? I do. It's probably going to take us five years, but I do think there's a decent amount of uranium. Of course, we're friendly with Canada to the north and there's uh, very, very high grade uranium in the Athabasca Basin of Saskatchewan. A lot of uranium in Australia. In fact, they have the largest reserves on the planet. Um, so there's, there's plenty of uranium for, let's say, Western friendly nations to be had. And, that, and we're talking about yellow cake, uranium mined out of the ground. As far as the rest of the fuel cycle, the U.S. is in an okay position. We have some uh, conversion that literally just restarted at uh, Convergence Metropolis plant in Illinois. 
that we started last month. Um, that's that can also ramp up. That can almost double its production levels, assuming they have sufficient uh, price incentives to do so. And they're looking at that. They're probably going to work on just getting that basic operational status um, happening and and smooth before they even consider ramping up that production. But there's conversion at Port Hope in Canada uh, that's run by Cameco. There's uh, there's some conversion in the EU. And then there's enrichment here. So, and fuel fabrication. So we have a decent fuel cycle, but it, it's insufficient to, uh, to supply even our own fleet of, I think it's 92, 93 reactors at this point, um, which is about 40 to 45 million pounds of uranium, of natural uranium demand per year. Um, are we going to get to that level of production? That's highly unlikely. Can we reach that level of, of consumption based on friendly nations? Of course, absolutely. Okay, um, so uh, I, I'm, I'm going to put a pin in the, there's going to be more investment needed uh, to get the yields that we want uh, to power the, the fleet that we think we're going to be, you know, continuing to invest in going forward. Um, but real quick, I'm just trying to make a quick case here, especially for viewers that haven't watched our, our earlier deeper dives, Justin. So, all right, on the energy security side, um, you know, sort of green light that says, hey, um, Nuclear is offering the promise of, you know, high, high yielding, uh, carbon free, uh, you know, resilient, uh, not dependent on foreign partners that maybe we're a little bit nervous about getting into business with. Um, so it ticks a lot of boxes on, on, on that side of things. Just going back to your decarbonization side for a moment. Um, I, I don't want to have the full discussion here. It's a, it's there are high emotions on both sides, um, but when you look at the safety and environmental track record of nuclear energy, right? When you look at it in terms of sort of deaths or um, environmental impact on a per BTU per you know production basis for the lifetime of the energy source. Again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's any energy source that has a track record that comes anywhere close to nuclears on both of those sides of things, right? It's, it's such a dense energy fuel. We're able to get a tremendous amount of, of, of always on uh, uninterrupted energy from, from uh, the fuel. Um, we've been able to do it incredibly safely over the life of, of, of the industry. Yes, there have been incidents. There's been Chernobyl, you know, there's been Three Mile Island, there was Fukushima, which we talked about earlier, but they're relatively few and far between. And when, again, when you look at the death count of the people that have been impacted, it's just a, it's a negligible fraction of the people who have lost their lives in the oil business and the gas business and the coal mining business. Again, when you look at sort of, you know, environmentally acreage, uh, toxins put into the earth, um, uh, emissions put up into the atmosphere. Again, it just doesn't compare to kind of the major fossil fuels that we've been using to power our economy for the past century plus. Is that all correct? Absolutely. It, it basically wins on almost every environmental related uh, study front that you can throw at it. Um, land use, it's the lowest land use per per kilowatt hour, megawatt hour, however you want to measure it, lowest land use of any energy source. It's the safest in terms of fatalities per energy uh, created of any energy source ever. Um, gosh, Doomberg did a recent piece uh, that was that was brilliant, that made a, 
a very interesting analogy or, or illusion, I should say, that uh, talks about the Bankiao Dam disaster in China. I believe mm -hmm. this happened in the 70s, if I recall correctly. Um, this was a, a catastrophic failure of this dam. Uh, they had a 100-year or 500-year, 1,000-year storm, whatever it was. The dam failed. Uh, potentially up to 250,000 people perished in that accident. And this does not even go into looking at the environmental catastrophe that dams are. This is looking at the human loss of life from this one incident. Um, I don't know that there was any rethink on whether or not we should build hydro following this accident. And that accident um, took the lives of more people by orders of magnitude than any, any sort of accident that has ever happened um, with, with civilian nuclear. And so it's, it's very interesting how, how nuclear energy has been maligned and has been aligned with uh, nuclear weaponry and, and, and nuclear war. And, you know, it's, it's just sort of, uh, it's a case of bad timing in some sense. You know, we had um, a kind of the, the Cold War and the Cuban Missile Crisis all in a similar time frame as Three Mile Island. And we had NGO-driven, um, you know, massive protests against nuclear that happened following Three Mile Island. And then, of course, uh, Chernobyl a few years after that really kind of put the nail in the coffin with new builds, at least in the West. So, uh, you know, and, and the nuclear industry... Has, has not done a very good job um, with the quote unquote propaganda war. I mean, they've essentially lost the war. And I think that that's, that ship is slowly, slowly turning. But there's been a lot of influence coming from fossil fuel lobby and NGOs that, that have done everything they can to slow down new nuclear builds. <clears throat> but they're also the same ones that are going to complain about how, how long it takes to build them and how much it costs. Um, I don't know if you've seen the recent uh, film by Oliver Stone, Nuclear Now, um, it's primarily uh, kind of a, a climate concern driven narrative around nuclear, which I understand the angle that he took. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of a deep dive into all of the incredible elements of nuclear energy that have nothing to do with uh, lack of carbon emissions. But the film did a very good job of going into the history of the anti-nuclear movement. To give you one example of kind of how this has played out over the decades, the Sierra Club was originally pro-nuclear. They had, um, they had a slogan that was uh, atoms, not dams. They were against hydroelectricity for um, obvious reasons, if you think about the ecological impacts for 30 seconds. Um, and they were pro-nuclear. They understood the land use element. They understood the clean energy element and the baseload element and, um, and, and the absolute engineering marvel that is nuclear energy. And they were in support of it. Along came uh, someone from the fossil fuel industry, uh, approached one of the heads of the Sierra Club, cut him a check for 200K, which at the time is probably the equivalent of a few million dollars. This person walked from the Sierra Club, started the uh, Nat Natural Resources Defense Council, the NRDC, and all of a sudden the NRDC um, was anti-nuclear after that, after that big fat check. And they still are. That organization is still in existence. They have been behind the anti-nuclear movement since that moment. They have had a big influence on it. They're the ones suing PG&E right now for extending the life of Diablo Canyon in California. They're not going to win. They have the support of the political establishment here and pretty much everybody else. But, um, you know, nuclear has, is finally starting to, the nuclear industry is finally starting to tell a better story. And that story is based on the, the benefit of humanity that can be had based on embracing and expanding of nuclear energy for various reasons, some of them I've already mentioned. All right, interesting. And and so uh, nuclear energy sort of started as a green energy source, then kind of became vilified as, you know, it's all going to kill us. 
Um, it seems like the track record is finally catching up with it. Maybe they're finally, you know, getting a better PR firm or whatnot. But where I'm going with this, I'm not necessarily trying to change the minds of, of folks that are viewing here. But what I'm trying to, to, to get out here is that it seems that nuclear is now being put back into the green energy space. And as we know, with the, the whole new green deal and everything like that, and the, the Inflation Reduction Act, which has a lot of uh, money uh, in it to be invested in, you know, basically rebuilding America's energy grid and whatnot, um, that like it or not, and I think a lot of people like you, Justin, probably like it, um, but like it or not, nuclear is now being perceived as a green energy source. And that's probably that momentum is probably likely going to continue. And I think you mentioned briefly earlier, but there's, there's actually a lot of funds and energy in the Department of Energy now going towards supporting nuclear in a way that the government hadn't been supporting it as much in the past. Is all that true? It is true. Yeah. The Department of Energy in the United States has become um, just unabashed supporters of nuclear. And uh, the Inflation Reduction Act is one, one element of that. Um, there's a demonstration project for advanced nuclear <clears throat> SMRs. There's two designs that have received $1.2 in funding each, if I recall correctly, from the DOE for establishing the first demonstration project of these designs. And that's TerraPower's Naturium Reactor. That's Bill Gates' project. Um, that's a, a, a sodium fast reactor that's going to be built in Wyoming. That's going to replace a coal power plant in Kemmerer, Wyoming. It's, this is a very interesting design and it, and there's a number of SMR designs that have elements of this where you can actually cycle up and down in terms of its power output more easily than a traditional large scale light water reactor. It can, it can do it faster and it can do it to more extreme levels. Whereas a large light water reactor might be able to cycle up and down 10 or maybe 20%. And it takes, takes a minute for that to happen. It's, it's, it's less suited towards um, balancing the intermittency of renewables, <clears throat> which I don't know why we even have to consider that, but we do based on the subsidies that are being thrown out at the, and the rate at which renewables are being built out. Um, so most of the time when there's a grid with a large amount of intermittent energy sources, such as wind and solar, that intermittency has to be balanced out in order to not completely destabilize the grid. And that has to happen from an energy source that can cycle up and down relatively quickly. Usually that's coal or natural gas, um, or in some cases in, in the EU, I, I guess, uh, biomass uh, is the same. It can cycle up and down easily as well. So this nature and reactor um, had, can store excess energy in the form of molten salt. And it can actually draw on that excess energy and ramp up from 340 megawatts, 340 or 370, I don't remember the kind of the baseline, up to 500 megawatts. And it can also cycle back down below uh, the baseline level. So very cool design. The other demonstration project is X Energy's XE100. Um, this is a gas-cooled, a helium-cooled uh, pebble bed reactor. And um, this uh, demonstration project is being built in Washington. Both of these projects are getting a lot of DOE funding. So uh, very cool for that industry in the United States. Um, another piece of evidence was DOE put out something called a liftoff report. This was two or three months ago. They did three separate reports and one of them was focused on nuclear. And this liftoff report essentially was taking their, uh, their net zero by 2050 goal and recognizing that nuclear is going to have to play a very large role in that. So they essentially are looking at um, more than doubling the US nuclear fleet by 2040. And they lay out a couple of different scenarios where if we, we start now versus starting in like 2035, and if we start this and get these actual new nuclear started to be constructed before 2030, the, the chances of reaching that goal are, you know, like multiples. 
so that that was extremely bullish that liftoff report they're basically saying we need this we are going to do this we have to do this to reach this goal and i'll give you one more example yeah i'm sorry real quick who who published that liftoff report department of energy okay great in the united states and lastly they did the doe also did an investigation of the coal power plants existing and retired in operating and retired in the united states and found that about 85% of them are viable for uh, coal to nuclear switching. So actually implementing a small modular reactor in place of, of burning coal and leaving the grid intact and leaving the bulk of that facility intact. Um, so, I mean, these are all pieces of evidence coming from the DOE in the United States. So that's all moving in a very, very good direction. The one big question mark for the United States in terms of new nuclear it has to do with the nuclear Red regulatory commission, the NRC, which have uh, not exactly been supportive of new designs. So a lot of these SMR designs have um, had hiccups in terms of, of licensing. So as of yet, we have not seen anything other than a light water reactor or a boiling water reactor get an NRC license. Now we're going to see, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to see TerraPower and X Energy submit applications to license their designs in the next year or two. Um, and hopefully we see the NRC embrace those designs and license them. If we see that, then it's game freaking on in the United States. If not, then what we're looking at is at the very least a bipartisan support of the existing fleet. But I can tell you that more than half of the nuclear utilities in the United States are actively looking into building new nuclear power plants. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, super interesting. So um, there's a lot of momentum going into this sector. Uh, DOE is kind of leading the charge. Big question mark is whether the key regulator, the NRC, is going to get on board here um, because they have to approve the designs of all these new technologies that you've just mentioned. Um, so that's a big TBD. Um, if they do, as you said, it's Uber game on. If they don't, you know, I guess we play politics for you know a few more years to see see who wins out here. Um, you mentioned a couple of terms. I just want to briefly define for our viewers here. Um, so uh, you mentioned uh, some of these um, these new technologies that are being deployed with DOE funding, but you call them demo plants. So basically, these are proof of concepts, right? Um, uh, you use the term SMR. Just want to define that for folks. That stands for small modular reactor. It basically means a much smaller or substantially smaller plant than the, the, the large installations that we currently have today and that we're familiar with, you know, from when we see pictures of nuclear plants. There's a lot of benefits of SMRs. If you could just give us maybe the 20 second breakdown of, of why there's so much interest in SMRs, Justin. Oh, 20 seconds. I'll try. Um, I would say that the people that are generally against nuclear, the main benefits of SMRs are that they are being designed with different, uh, more robust safety me mechanisms. Um, they will, uh, some of these designs will actually produce less waste than a large scale light water, boiling water reactor. So those are kind of the, the anti-nuclear talking points for SMRs. I would say in the United States, especially 
the biggest use case uh, and for support for SMRs has to do with uh, financing risk. So if you're in an environment with interest rates as they are now, you can imagine that delays in construction for a very, for multi-billion dollar projects get very, very expensive. So to the extent that small modular reactors can be built faster, even if the economies of scale aren't coming into play in terms of cost per megawatt delivered, the overall cost of the project is likely to see more embracing of smaller projects based on financing risk. Okay. And, and just to be clear, uh, they are smaller, small modular reactors. So smaller means smaller environmental, environmental impact when it goes in there. Uh, you, you mentioned sort of some safety benefits you get from that. Um, you can deploy them faster. You can deploy them in way more places because a, a traditional nuclear power plant needs a very sort of specific set of, of elements to be in place, right? It needs a ton of water to cool it and certain things like that, right? So you can deploy these in more places that couldn't otherwise get this type of energy. And because they're modular, you mentioned economies of scale. You, you understand the economics better than I do, but, but part of, I think, the logic there is, you know, kind of every nuclear plant that's been built in the U.S. at least to date has kind of been a one-off project where it's, it's a custom project. Everything's kind of being done for the first time to a certain extent. Everything's kind of bespoke. Small nuclear reactors can almost be sort of like factory built, right, where there's a lot of standardization so you can get economies of scale down in terms of parts, interoperability, the talent from one plant can know how to work the other plant because everything's sort of identical. You're nodding as I'm saying this. Uh, oh, people can actually see that this time in this format. That's actually nice. I don't have to say it. So am I capturing some of the other key benefits too? Yeah, I think you make a really good point. There's, <clears throat> I'm going to give a shout out to the Decouple podcast um, that Dr. Chris Kiefer does. He's a nuclear advocate based out of Canada. This is a fantastic podcast. The last episode he did, I don't have the person's name right in front of me, but this this young man was brilliant and knew knew every single data point uh, about every element of the nuclear industry in the United States. And one of the points he made about kind of the failure of new nuclear builds in the United States has to do with exactly what you mentioned, that there's a lot of unique designs that were developed and built out in the 70s and into the 80s. And, um, and we never really got to the point of building these things in quote unquote fleet mode. So we've seen, for example, in Canada, uh, their fleet is exclusively the Candu reactor, the heavy water reactor. Um, <clears throat> we've seen the Chinese now uh, build out a number of Hualong 1, Hualong 2 reactors. Those, those reactors are good. They're building those one after another, after another, after another. And to your point, you can have a, a skilled labor force that can go from one project to the next. Um, I, in theory, that's one of the attractive elements of, uh, that's being proposed with the small modular reactors is the, is, the, is the modular nature of these things and the fact that they can actually be uh, built in factory, built, shipped out and assembled on site. And, you know, the, the first of a kind, um, the, kind of the test case for these designs is really going to be far more expensive in theory than if we have uh, multiple orders. By the way, there's orders for hundreds and hundreds of SMRs of various designs around the world right now um, that, that we can see a fleet mode production of these of these reactors. And, and that's, been, that's been a problem in the United States as far as that goes, yeah. Um, and I think that the labor force really is going to be one of the biggest challenges um, in the United States. And I, I would say in the West generally, we've seen recently that um, the country of France announced, I don't remember the dollar amount, I apologize. I think it was in the hundreds of millions of euros uh, of support for basically um, uh, educating and building out a growing 
uh, fleet of skilled nuclear workers. And France wants to build another six large reactors in the next 10 years. These are, uh, these are EPR2 reactors, um, very large uh, advanced reactors. They're light water reactors, but they're, they're a new design. And they, they need to build out their workforce and they're recognizing that and they're putting forth money to do it. Um, whereas you have, you know, generally speaking in the East, you have much more of a focus on STEM, much more of a focus on engineering, and you have very robust labor forces in South Korea and China, et cetera. Okay. So um, just what I want to put on folks's, you know, radars here is, is there's kind of this renaissance of technology, right? We can build reactors differently. Um, we can use new technologies to power them. You also mentioned a, a term molten salt reactor, which is just sort of one, one of the many different um, technologies that's being looked at to produce uh, nuclear energy, perhaps more efficiently and more safely than the existing technologies that are out there. Um, we have, um, these can be mobile. Um, I, I know when we were Kind of doing our prep for this uh, discussion, Justin, you mentioned to me that that there's uh, companies that are looking at basically creating kind of these you know nuclear generators, if you will, that can be put into a shipping container essentially and just be sort of delivered on site, right? Um, and you you gave a nod to the fact that you know there are ways to basically convert coal powered plants eventually to nuclear in the future. So there's there's all there's kind of like this huge stack of new technology that's just waiting to get applied to this industry. Um, but, you know, what's the challenge here is to get kind of everything approved regulatorily and to get out there, test it, and then run with it. It sounds like some of the testing's beginning to be done, you know, the U.S. probably behind some other countries. But as you've said, the DOE is, is testing some of these demo plants. But let's take the case of, of SMRs, small, small, small modular reactors. How many are actually like built and deployed and operating worldwide right now? Well, I mean, we have we have the nuclear navy in the United States and in various other countries that have essentially small modular reactors powering submarines that have been that's been there for more than fifty years. All right, you're right. That's very true. We, we we have proven the SMR in in our naval fleet. You're right. It's a very good point. Many people forget that, but that's still kind of you know older technology. My, my point is, and correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think we have any that are that are actually built, deployed, and commercially operable on land yet. Am I wrong? Correct. Yeah, the first one is being built in China right now. It's it's close to first criticality. That should probably be achieved within the next 12 months or so. Um, <clears throat> but there's various others that are actively being constructed currently in, in, in a number of countries. Yeah. And, I mean, the interesting thing with SMRs really is my excitement around SMRs has pretty much everything to do with where I want to see humanity going. Um, you know, the, the, the energy density that comes from fission is unparalleled and <clears throat> never since the advancement of civilization, have we gone, um, from a relatively high energy return on investment source of energy, um, and, and gone in reverse. And we're doing that now going from fossil fuels to renewables largely, um, that's not going to bode well for humanity and the prospering of humanity. Um, so my, my take on, on new nuclear, SMRs and otherwise, has everything to do with where I want to see humanity going, what's going to benefit humanity the most. As far as the investment case, we don't need to see another single new reactor built in the next five to 10 years for this to play out. So all of this is gravy on top. Um, 
all of the reactor construction in the world can stop right now. And we're going to see higher uranium prices based on the existing fleet. So that's why all of this is just, it, it's so, it, it, it's gravy on top. And I can tell you right now, everybody that's doing supply and demand modeling on the investing side of the nuclear thesis and uranium mining stocks that has a modeling going out in the future, looking at overall supply, overall demand, and what they ex where they expect it to go. Nobody is modeling out for uranium demand coming from small modular reactors, for example. So <clears throat> any demand that comes from these, um, at whatever level they're rolled out, whether it's a complete dud and nothing happens on the SMR front or it's an absolute uh, snowball effect and we see these uh, just really gain steam. And I think that's where it's going to go anyways. And one of the primary nuclear uh, consultants and price reporters, Trade Tech, they expect that we'll see 200 million pounds of uranium demand uh, cumulatively between now and 2035. And that's on top of the demand from the existing and expected to grow fleet of large reactors. So it, it's all gravy on top as far as supply and demand modeling goes. But the exciting thing about nuclear for me has nothing to do with the investing case. The investing case is very simple. It's we have this existing fleet. These are the reactors under construction now are expected to be grid connected. These are the reactors that will likely get life extensions. And this is the supply that's happening now and we expect for the next few years. That's basically easy math. It takes some time to model it out. But once you see it, you can't unsee it. Um, so the price is going way higher, whether or not SMRs are the next big thing or it's a complete dud. Okay, so what I hear you saying is sort of under the base assumption, almost sort of the steady eddy case, um, when you model the demand out, you look at the supply and you say, oh my gosh, we're going to need a lot more uranium. Then there's the potential that, you know, China releases its SMR, maybe some other countries, you know, reactors, new reactors begin to come online. And the world really wakes up to the potential of nuclear. And then there's kind of a land rush that goes on to say, okay, gosh, we got to do a lot more of this stuff, right? That, as you said, that's all gravy on top of the base case. But even the base case demand for uranium sounds really attractive to you right now. So, so let's now move over to the supply side. What are the dynamics of the supply? And, and it sounds like you think that it's going to be playing catch up for a long time, even under the base case scenario. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, there's no slam dunks on the supply side, really. Um, it's it's basically very fragile and it's increasingly complicated due to the bifurcating of the market that we're seeing right now. <clears throat> that doesn't necessarily have to stick for the investment thesis to work out, but it's looking like it's probably likely to stick. Um, and I'm talking about kind of East versus West, or let's say like BRICS nations versus the OECD. And the way that that's happening currently is basically Western nuclear utilities are mostly voluntarily not engaging in new business with Russia. And Russia has been and continues to be the largest player in both conversion and enrichment with about 43% of enrichment capacity globally and about 37% of conversion capacity globally. <clears throat> so this bifurcating market is creating some problems in the fuel cycle for the West. The West is scrambling to address um, in the meantime, Western enrichers have to raise their tails assays and their enrichment process. And <clears throat> without getting into the weeds on that, basically means more, more uranium is needed in order to produce uh, more enriched uranium with fixed capacity. Now, Urenco is already, Urenco is a Western enricher. <clears throat> They've already announced that they're going to be expanding their enrichment capacity, but it's going to take some time. It's going to take a couple of years to add a minimal amount of enrichment capacity. It's great that they're doing that. It's moving in the right direction. <clears throat> but all else being equal, more uh, higher tails assays for Western riches means more uranium demand. 
And that's, that's happening now. Uh, conversion, uh, limitations in conversion are sort of keeping a lid on the extent of the overfeeding that can happen at Western Enrichers, but it's already happening a little bit. Enrichers are big uh, buyers of conversion. So when you say, oh, the conversion is completely, uh, it's completely tapped out. There's no conversion available till 2027. Well, that's basically true. There's a little bit in the West, but some of the biggest customers of that conversion are the enrichers. So the enrichers are able to kind of tweak those cascades a little bit, raise those tails assays a little bit, bring in more feedstock. They've been out there buying UF6 to the extent that's available and there's not much. They've been buying conversion. They're buying a little bit of uranium. So uh, in the near term, with the continuation of a bifurcated market, we're going to see more uranium demand um, this year, next year, 2025. Unless and until the market debifurcates and all of a sudden Russian enrichment and, and conversion capacity is just wide open and available to Western utilities, uh, or we see substantial more capacity built out in the West. And it's, it's kind of this complex scenario. I, I hope I described that decently, but, but basically the supply side to answer your question a little bit more clearly, um, we have, cause Adamprom is the biggest supplier um, in Kazakhstan and in the world. So Kazakhstan on a hundred percent basis produces about 43% of the world's uh, uranium supply as of last year. And Kazatomprom um, on, on just their own basis is, you know, about half of that supply. So they have a bunch of JVs. They have joint ventures with Japanese. We have joint ventures uh, with an, a number of joint ventures with the Russians and the Chinese. And then, of course, a couple with the French and one with Cameco at Inkai. Now, uh, interestingly enough, over the past, uh, since we spoke last year, Adam, because um, Adam Prom sort of kind of pushed through a backdoor deal with Rosatom, with a Russian nuclear uh, nuclear entity. And this was for a new mine. It's the six and seven blocks of the Budenovskoy mine. It's a very large deposit in Kazakhstan. And they pushed through this deal for Rosatom to own 49% of that. And that was back in December. Um, following this deal, a bunch of the C-suite at Kazatom Prom basically left, bailed out. And we've seen a lot of uh, heads of this company leave the company over the past year, year and a half. And now we know why. Um, but this, in my opinion, is a story that was just almost utterly ignored by the market. That the largest producer in the world is deepening ties with Russia. And regardless of how any of us feel about, about that personally, the reality is that the Western uh, that the West is is moving away from Russian supply of, of essentially everything. And that's not, there's no difference with that with, with nuclear. So <clears throat> the fact that the biggest producer of uranium has deepened ties with Russia, it has potentially huge implications for Western utilities and what that means for, for production going forward. Basically what it means to us, not only that, but this other very large contract we've yet to have uh, specifics on with uh, China National Nuclear and Kazatomprom, more pounds coming from the country of Kazakhstan are going to remain in the East, period, the end. So even if Kazakhstan or Kazatoprom, let's say, can quote unquote, turn on the taps and ramp production, which A, they can't, they will, they will increase production, but it's going to take a lot of money and a lot of time and a clean, reliable source of uh, sulfuric acid that is um, unabated. And that's all very difficult. Um, but they will be able to increase production a little bit. But most of that increased production is just going to stay in the East. And most of the demand for uranium exists in the West. We're talking 70% of global nuclear production and uranium demand is in the West. So supply is very fragile. It's very fragile. And there's no, 
there's no panacea out there where we're just going to see uranium flowing in out of anywhere. Um, we have strategic inventories. There's massive inventories in the world. There's over a billion pounds held in inventory. Those are strategic. Utilities have to hold inventories because of the time it takes to run this material fuel through the fuel cycle. So two to three years of inventory is standard for every single utility on the planet. China is holding three or 400 million pounds of inventory. You think that's going to flood into the spot market when they're building 10 reactors a year? I don't think so. So it's... It's, it's a very, again, it's very simple. Demand is stable and it's growing. You know, when I first started looking at this sector, demand was expected to grow by one or maybe 2% a year. Now it's expected to grow four to 5% a year. And it's very easy to model out. Supply, however, you know, it takes a very long time and it's very complicated to build mines. We can just look at the only uh, green field uranium mine that is set to come online in the next few years is Global Atomics DASA project in Niger. There was a coup last week in Niger. The supply coming from that mine that was basically expected by the market and by a number of utilities in 2025 is now in question. Um, you know, it's, it's supply is no guarantee, and we're gonna we're gonna keep seeing evidence of that, not just from Niger or from you know we saw we saw kind of some shenanigans with some uh, two companies in the U.S. where one of those companies expected production is now delayed because they got the rug pulled on them with the with a uh, processing facility in Wyoming. That's two pieces of of expected production in the next few years that have been delayed. And this is in the last 30 days. Um, supply is fragile. Demand is not, basically. <laughs> I mean, to put it really simply. Wow. Um, yeah. And those numbers are just staggering. So um, most of the demand, the future demand is coming from the West. Um, it, the, the growth rate of that demand is going up. So you said it's about 70% of future world demand is going to come from the West. Now growing, expected to grow about 4.5% a year. But 43% of world uh, uranium supply comes from Kazakhstan, which is moving closer to Russia. So you're basically saying the growth of the growth of that source is going to be slow, period. <laughs> and we may decide we don't want much of it going forward. You see, the terms used is probably going to stay in the east, largely for geopolitical reasons. So, yeah, that does show some very big, you know, I would say maybe tremendous supply gaps. And I think you said the only greenfield new mine that's expected to come online in the next couple of years, meaning that the, the world is playing catch up is going to take us a while. Uh, they just hit a coup there. So who knows what's going to happen with that? So, you know, with all of this, you would think the market would say, whoa, okay, wait a minute. The value of your future value of uranium, you know, is going up. Let's boost the uranium price higher. And obviously that plus just the dynamics of the demand side would incent, you would think, companies to say, okay, well, we got to start mining more and hey, let's start mining in some of these friendly locations, both for energy resilience, as well as just for, hey, you know, it's, it's attractive economics, like let's go do it. You mentioned that America's got a lot of deposits, Canada's got a lot of deposits, Australia's got a lot of deposits. Okay, those are very safe <laughs> places to do business in. What's happening there? Is the market in the process of responding to this yet? It is, yeah. Um, so I don't want to paint a picture that there's no supply coming online. That's not true. Um, you'll hear people say there's no new mines. No, that's not true either. Um, there are new mines in development. It's just going to take so long to bring that supply online that we're going to see a price response far longer, far, far earlier before the supply comes online. And even when it comes online, it'll be insufficient to fill that gap. So uh, in, in Canada, we have NextGen developing the aero deposit there in the environmental review process. That's going to take a couple of years, I believe. 
Um, <clears throat> and then they have to build an extremely large mill. They're looking at producing potentially up to 30 million pounds per year as uh, according to their feasibility study. Um, we've never seen a mine that large, uh, an underground mine that large. It's, it's a very deep mine. It doesn't have the same geological complexities that we have at MacArthur River, Cigar Lake with the freeze walls, et cetera. But um, I think that there's, there was a recent um, research report that was put out. I don't remember who put it out. It might've been Canaccord that basically said they, they expect first production from next gen in 2027. And while that's technically possible, I mean, we've seen, you know, you'll see these time-lapse videos of the Chinese building an overpass in 24 hours uh, or in 12 hours overnight. You know, these, these things are technically possible. Um, we've never seen a mine built on, in that time frame in the West or in Canada specifically. So these underground mines, you know, the discovery of Cigar Lake from the discovery of that deposit to the production first produced pounds was something like 20 to 25 years. Um, but, you know, NextGen is in stages of development. That will be a mine eventually. Will it be producing uranium in 2027? I find that highly unlikely, but it's possible. Um, Denison is in uh, early stages of development of the Phoenix deposit. There's a bunch of exploration projects. Arano is well established in Saskatchewan. That's the French um, uh, uranium uh, miner, and uh, they they have a, a technology called Saber, where they basically send a borehole down into the deposit and do like this rotational uh, rotational uh, jet boring, where then they can suck the slurry out of the same borehole and the same uh, piping that, that drove the hole. Very cool. They've proven it out. It works. They'll be able to mine more there. Arano is developing ISR in Mongolia. That's expected to be producing maybe by 2030. Um, there's another Arano JV in Kazakhstan. There's, like I mentioned, the Budenovskoy 6 and 7. There's, I think, one more deposit that's being developed in Kazakhstan. So those mines are coming online. The Uzbeks are ramping. They're expected to double their production by 2030. That'll be another 8 or 9 million pounds. So there is supply coming. But based on the demand growth uh, and based on the reactors under construction that will be grid-connected by that time, and the existing fleet, which much of that will be life extended. Um, all of that production online still doesn't fill that supply gap. And I'm telling you, all of that production is not going to come online on time and on budget. So um, there is supply coming online, but it's insufficient and too late to stop what's about to happen with the price. Okay. And when you say what's about to happen in price, where, what do you see happening to price from here? Well, there was a great piece of evidence, actually, in today's conference call um, with Cameco, where Grant Isaac stated, basically, he actually, we oftentimes don't get these sort of pricing hints uh, coming from producers, especially, because most contracts have NDAs. Now, he was just kind of throwing out some rough numbers, but he's basically said that they're looking at base escalated contracts um, that, are, that are essentially market reference instead of uh, fixed price contracts with some element of that market reference. So... In the past, in a buyer's market, utilities want fixed price, producers want market reference because producers understand where the price is going to go. And um, I mean, put simply, it's going higher. So producers want market reference, utilities want fixed as much as possible so that they can understand what they're going to be paying going out in the future as, as much as they can and de-risk um, and have some, some line of sight on budgeting. Well, what Grant Isaac said today is they're looking at uh, market reference contracts that are base escalated with, with a floor around 50 bucks a pound and ceilings uh, somewhere around 80 bucks a pound. So when you have a ceiling at 80 bucks a pound, that basically means that you and the utility you're signing the contract with expect the price to breach $80 a pound. Because okay. you, and, and starting up, where is it right now? What is the price per pound right now? 
Uh, the spot price right now, I think off the top of my head, is about $56.25 a pound, if I recall correctly. And the term price is just barely slightly above that. The three-year and five-year forward are are in the $60 a pound range. But um, yeah, spot price, $56 bucks a pound. Okay. I just wanted folks to be able to know relative yes. with the 80 price you're talking, sure. dollar price you're talking about is. So sorry to interrupt, but that was useful info. No, it's fine. It's fine. Um, uh, but these, you know, the floors, the floors in a contract are to protect the producer to maintain and guarantee a minimum amount that they can make by that production. And the ceilings are to protect, protect the utility. So to put a ceiling at $80 a pound, that's basically an understated acknowledgement that the price is going to breach $80 a pound and they want protection for that uh, price spike. Um, so, so that's where, you know, Cameco, one of the biggest producers and utilities that they deal with are usually, you know, large, serious utilities. They're both saying the price is going way higher and we need some protection to that upside. <clears throat> so that's, I mean, that's a piece of evidence that was just today from the conference call. Um, and that $80 price ceiling really is probably somewhere in the ballpark of where we're, we're looking at marginal production. So when you look at some of the low grade projects that need higher prices, you know, these are some of the lower grade open pit mines, let's say in Namibia, for example, for those to be developed, we need consistent prices above that level. And that is going to need to happen eventually to fill the supply gap based on expected demand that we are modeling out and that others in our industry are modeling out. So that marginal cost of production basically sets kind of what sets the floor really of where this needs to go. And above and beyond that really just has to do with, with basic supply and demand and, and the buying, the purchasing manner that utilities could engage in. Um, we're in year one of a contracting cycle that typically will last four five, six years. And <clears throat> we haven't seen a single year of replacement rate contracting, which is, you know, 180 ish million pounds a year contracted by the nuclear utilities in the calendar year. We haven't seen that since 2012 this year. We believe we're going to hit that. We're currently at 118 million pounds per year, uh, year to date, excuse me in long-term contracts. And we think we're going to hit that 175, 180 million pound level uh, by the end of the year. And that'll be year one of a contracting cycle. So, uh, and that's not even factoring in kind of these quote unquote X factors, which are the financial players and whether or not we'll see capital flow in a major risk on way again into the sector. Um, we're not going to need it to see a price appreci appreciation, but if it comes, it's going to have an extreme influence on the spot price because there's just not a lot of material flowing into the spot market on a consistent basis. So if we have risk come on into Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, for example, or into the recently launched Zuri Invest or the two or three other physical entities that are expected to come online in the next uh, you know, 12 months or so, physical funds, we're going to see probably a price spike that is going to go far beyond what is necessary for the healthy functioning of the market. Okay, um, I, I, I'd love to talk more about that, but I, I got to start bringing in some of these user questions. Um, we're going to run a little bit over the hour, if that's okay, Justin, yeah, just because I want to make sure we get we get to questions. And, and this has been such a great discussion. Um, but yes, there are these big investment trusts uh, that have been created and are being created that are basically just going out and buying tons of contracts on uranium or in certain cases, just the product itself. Um, and uh, those are just big new buyers coming in, capital flowing into this market that already is somewhat supply constrained. So that's gonna be providing again, some additional upward pressure on price here. Before I get to the first question, Justin, is, is from an investing standpoint, is investing in the nuclear 
sector in terms of um, producers, and, and I'm thinking more of the miners here of uranium, but but maybe you can speak to other players along the chain as well. Is it similar to like the, the precious metals mining industry where you have the prospects for the base metal itself, um, but then the mining companies and whatnot on top of that, um, they're like leverage plays on it. So if you expect the, the price of the the underlying commodity to do well, then the folks that are out there mining it, supplying it, their stocks, you know, could go up multiples of what the uh, what, what the actual metal itself does. Typically, yes. Um, I mean, we've seen that. We saw that definitely in the previous bull market for uranium that happened, you know, oh four to oh seven. We've we've seen that in uh, in the first big leg up for this market, which essentially was December twenty twenty to November twenty twenty one. About a twelve month period, we saw a huge, huge leg up, and you can see that. You can see the uh, the movement of Uranium Participation Corporation at the time, which became the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. Uh, versus the movement of the large cap producing and large cap development stocks versus the small caps. And the small caps, you know, pretty substantially outperformed the large caps in that first big leg up. But the opposite is true on this consolidation that we've had since that time period. We're we're going on, you know, in in the next few months, it'll be two years that we've seen this consolidation. We've seen a couple of blips during that period of time, short runs that last for a month or two and then kind of pull back. And we've seen a decent recovery since March of this year to this point now, you know, URA, URNM up 20, 25% since March. But for the most part, it's been a downward and then sideways consolidation over about an 18 month period. Um, And during that period of time, the small caps are down way more than the large caps. And of course, the physical is up during that period of time. So if you look at a chart of um, of, of spot of the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, for example, that is in this big, beautiful ascending triangle, making <clears throat> hitting similar resistance for the past year and making higher lows. Um, which you know, if you're making a bet on the price going up, I think you know which way that's probably going to break, and we believe it's going to break to the upside. Um, so yeah, generally speaking, the mining stocks are leverage on the commodity, uh, and in both directions. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, in both directions. And it's important to uh, to remind investors of that. Um, okay, so um, let me let me start bringing some questions in here, folks. Folks, as you have questions, ask them here in the live chat, and I will do my best to surface as many as I can. So Shannon here says, Australia has the most uranium in the world. Have all you want. There is no shortage of supply. So I'd like you to react to the spirit of this question, which is like, hey, we got tons of it. Um, but you you said, look, you know, to get a mine like up and running from concept to production, that's like 20, 25 years in the West right now. Like, why does it take so damn long? <clears throat> Well, that that also, you know, depends on jurisdiction, depends on red tape and bureaucracy and government bureaucracy and things like that. Um, in Australia, you have uh, some jurisdictions that are that are in support of uranium mining and some that are not. So, yes, they do have the most uranium. They have the largest reserve, the largest known reserves on the planet. There isn't any nuclear energy in Australia as of this moment, but 
there is a number of groups that are advocating for that. So hopefully we see them go in that direction, but you know, it's not really on anybody's bingo card. Um, <clears throat> it's, you know, it just, it takes a very long time. Uh, exploration is difficult uh, and expensive. And you have, you know, these small cap uranium mining explorers that uh, have such a small market capitalization to do a small drill program. They've got to have decent, a decent amount of dilution to fund that. Uh, it's it's a very, very difficult game to discover. Once you discover a deposit, you have to have uh, pricing in the industry to support the development. You have to have typically long-term contracts signed with nuclear utilities sufficient to de-risk the development of that project. You have to have, you have to raise the capital. Um, right now, I would argue that money is expensive. It's not, it's, you know, in a higher interest rate environment, it's, it's not cheap to develop new mines and you're going to have to be damn sure that development is de-risked with uh, <clears throat> a minimal level of long-term contracts and an expectation that we're going to see a pricing environment that's going to support that production once you get into production. There's huge risks for developers, huge risks, financial and otherwise. So you have to have an environment that's going to support that on all levels. You have to be in the right jurisdiction. <clears throat> you have to have the political support. You have to be able to raise the capital. You have to have the price in the right place. Uh, for the commodity itself. You have to have utilities stepping up to the plate and signing contracts with you. And then you have to have the expertise and the know-how to actually bring it into production. All of those boxes have to be checked. So that can take a very long time. And in most cases, in most discovered deposits, it never will happen. It just never happens. So in Australia, there's some, <clears throat> there's some very big projects. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, in Queensland, for example, where uranium mining, there's still a moratorium there. Um, there's currently a couple of brownfield ISR restarts, uh, Boss's uh, honeymoon project, and um, <clears throat> gosh, the other one escapes me right right now. I apologize for that, but a lot of uranium there. Um, but it's it's doesn't look like there's a lot of new development and new production expected to come online. <clears throat> the biggest production increase out of Australia is going to come from BHP in their Olympic Dam mine which is primarily a gold and copper mine uh, and uranium is kind of a bonus there. And they produce, you know, somewhere around 8 million pounds a year in that ballpark. <clears throat> Been very consistent. They're spot market sellers or they sell shorter term spot reference contracts and they'll probably get another two, three, four million pounds per year out of that mine in the next few years. Okay. And um, I'm just curious, I'm asking you to prognosticate here, but like, what do you think are, are the, the, best candidates for triggers that could get, at least in the West, um, you know, politicians and regulators to work together to streamline this whole process. Like if, if, if you know, I, I don't want to oversell it and say it becomes the next Manhattan project, but like if the world really gets religion around uh, nuclear and they decide, okay, we need more of this stuff. Um, what do you think are the most likely triggers and, and what do you think realistically it could be compressed down to if, if we as a country said, yeah, we really want to do this? Honestly, like I mentioned earlier, perhaps the biggest impediment at the moment is the NRC. So if we see some reform at the NRC and we see them license another new build, um, well, for example, they have licensed one SMR and that's new scales, uh, Voyager reactor. They've, they've licensed the 50 megawatt SMR new scale is however, of course, um, promoting and planning to build the 77 megawatt version of that reactor. And that application was just filed, uh, two days ago. 
And the NRC responded to that and basically said, we have accepted this application. So that's apparently a big step is just accepting the application, even though they've already approved and licensed and permitted the smaller size of this exact same design. <clears throat> but that process is going to take two years, up to two years for a design they're already familiar with and is already licensed to slightly larger. So basically the same design, just a little larger, and that's going to take years to review. Yes. Now, the good news on that front is that the Carbon Free Power Project, which is a, subsidi a subsidiary of UAMPS, which is a, Utah, a, a conglomerate of, of uh, utilities in Utah, uh, CFPP just applied also to the NRC for early construction permits. So they expect this to be approved and permitted, this larger 77 megawatt design. And they expect they want to start building it before that permitting even happens. So they just applied for that early construction. So it's looking likely that's going to happen. That'll basically be the first new nuclear build in this country since uh, Vogel, which just literally started commercial operation within this past week. Um, but I think honestly, when we see when we see another new reactor um, uh, build be licensed and start construction, I think it could be game on. If we see some sort of reform at the NRC, um, would be a very positive sign. If we see any other type of design approved and licensed and permitted in the United States that is not light water, boiling water. So if, we, if and when we see uh, Natrium's TerraPower or TerraPower's Natrium or the XC100 or even the BWRX300 uh, GE Hitachi's design, if any of those are permitted in the United States, then I think it's going to be game on. Okay. All right. And like um, I mentioned, currently actively nuclear utilities in the United States are looking into building new nuclear. And technically, they can, you know, apply for construction permits for already uh, permitted designs of, you know, these large scale light water, boiling water reactors that have already been constructed and, and, and can be permitted. So that can happen. The problem with the large scale designs in the United States, and there's a lot of lessons to be learned from, from, from Vogel. Which, by the way, in that liftoff report, there was a whole section dedicated to sort of uh, doing a forensic audit of what happened at Vogel, what went wrong, and how can we fix it. And one of the biggest things is just having, having every single piece of engineering and design 100% complete before you break ground. That was not the case with Vogel. And they ran into so many problems that it bankrupted Westinghouse you know, during the process of construction. The cost overruns were huge. It took seven or eight years longer than it was supposed to, which at six, 7% interest rates, you have a seven-year delay on a multi-billion dollar project. That's going to bankrupt whoever's building it. So there's a lot of de-risking and engineering and uh, you know capital risk that need to be considered before any nuclear utilities in the U.S., start to move towards building large-scale nuclear, but there are some that are considering it in addition to the SMRs. But most of the focus for U.S. utilities that are considering new builds, they're looking at advanced nuclear, looking at smaller projects. Okay. All right. Um, so during this discussion in the chat, um, there was a lot of debate back and forth between kind of the pro-nuclear folks and the pro-natural gas folks. And um, some of the arguments that were being made is like, we don't even need to look at nuclear. We've got just an unlimited supply of natural gas and we should just be leaning totally into that and forget nuclear. Um, this comment here from Jack, I'd maybe like you to, to react to where he says nuclear and gas are complementary energy systems. And I'm, I'm curious um, when people bring up natural gas and its abundance and its cheapness and all that stuff, um, how do you see that in nuclear playing together or do you not see them playing together? 
Um, I definitely see them playing together. Yeah. Um, natural gas. I, I'm not against natural gas um, energy production by any means. Um, it's really interesting. You know, President Trump got a lot of flack for uh, abandoning the Paris Accord. But out of all of the countries that signed the Paris Accord, the U.S. was the only country that reduced its carbon emissions because they transitioned a number of coal power plants to natural gas, which is orders of magnitude less uh, pollutive. So, you know, natural gas, I think, is a fantastic fuel to move from burning coal, burning biomass, burning oil to produce electricity towards uh, an expansion of nuclear. Um, renewal, renewables are going to play some role. New, uh, natural gas, of course, is... I would argue even more complementary to renewables than it is to nuclear because, because of what I mentioned earlier, that it can cycle up and down relatively easily and, and augment that intermittency that comes from solar and wind. Um, but yeah, I mean, by all accounts, natural gas is, is more abundant than oil at this point. Um, it's relatively cheap still at this point. Um, you know, the main argument against it, I suppose, is that it's <clears throat> still a fossil fuel or that it is, you know, it, it is it is eventually going to, we're eventually going to tap out even natural gas supply. And so um, expanding that and expecting that it will be abundant and available and cheap forever, I think would be an error, but I do think it's, it's, uh, it's complementary and I'm not against the expansion of natural gas production and, and energy production from that gas. Okay. Um, you've already touched on this, but maybe we could just do a quick deeper dive. Uh, Rob asks, Hey, aren't they building, uh, an SMR online in Wyoming. Um, this is one of those demo plants that you were talking about. Just, just give us the quick backstory on the technology that's being deployed there. And, and if it goes well, what you think the implications will be? Um, so this is, this is TerraPower's Natrium uh, project. This is uh, <clears throat> one of the two designs that has funding from the Department of Energy. Um, it is set to be constructed in uh, Kemmerer, Wyoming, where there currently exists a coal power plant, and it's going to replace that. <clears throat> this is um, TerraPower's Bill Gates. Uh, Bill Gates' uh, brainchild has, also has backing and funding from Warren Buffett. Um, like I said, it was out of the dozens and dozens of reactors and designs that were submitted to the DOE um, in, in hopes of receiving this funding, the two projects they chose, this was one of those two. So it, for whatever reason, the Department of Energy has high hopes for this design. Um, this design is something called a fast reactor. I'm not a nuclear engineer, so I'm not going to be able to dive into the ins and outs of the engineering of this plant. My understanding is that it has, uh, it can store excess heat in the form of molten salt and that molten, that heat stored in the molten salt essentially acts like a battery. And so it will allow this, uh, this reactor to draw from that held energy in the molten salt heat and produce and ramp up the output of electricity. So it's baseline output. I, if I recall correctly, I think it's 340 megawatts and it can ramp up by pulling from that molten salt storage to 500 megawatts for something like five hours. Uh, it can also cycle down more easily based on designs that I can't explain to you. So very, very intriguing design. Um, uh, very hopeful. Um, if this is uh, a success, if it does get built and does replace this coal plant and goes off without a hitch, and of course there's going to be a hitch in the first of its kind, but um, <clears throat> I would say that it, it bodes well for it to be officially licensed by the NRC and permitted and more of these can be built. Especially with the DOE already saying 85% of the coal power plant sites decommissioned or, or operational currently can be uh, replaced with small modular reactors. I mean, that's them saying that, not me. That's, that's super impressive. 85%. Yeah, that, that 
all of a sudden you get a great alternative to and, and pathway to replacing all your coal fire plants, whether they're operational or decommissioned. Yeah. Um, all right, here's a question from Mr. James. Um, what direction should young people go if they want to get into this market? Nuclear science, mining, policy, I guess construction is another one I'd put in there if we're going to be constructing more of these. Um, what do you think? Oh, gosh. Um, <clears throat> all of the above seem like very, very promising to me. Um, I would say if you are uh, of sufficient intellect to be a nuclear engineer, go for it. I think that's probably the biggest shortage is going to be skilled, skilled nuclear engineers and uh, potentially even on the construction side um, that I think if you if you have skills that can be applied to being part of the construction of nuclear power plants, you can probably work anywhere in the world. Um, but honestly, any any of those uh, nuclear science, mining policy, I mean, we need all of the above. So hard, hard to really choose one of those. I would say whatever you're most interested of those. I, I mean, the policy side sounds the most boring, but might be the most important. Um, nuclear science sounds the most interesting. And if you happen to be uh, super into rocks, you know, uh, we need more, we need more skilled miners as well. All right. Um, all right. Well, we're going to have to start wrapping it up here, folks. Um, Justin, uh, thank you for going so long with us. Um, folks, uh, thanks for hanging a little bit over an hour here. Um, really enjoy these kind of from the trenches, uh, real time updates from folks. I tried to pull as many questions as I could from uh, the live chat here. Also in a number of my questions, I was kind of amalgamating a lot of the discussion that I saw here. So hopefully we captured most of what you folks were interested in hearing from Justin. Um, if you do like these live formats, with the ability to ask questions and have them addressed live by the speaker. Please let me know uh, in the comments section. When we've done it in the past, folks have said they'd like to see more of this, which is one of the reasons why I reached out to Justin to do this. But obviously, I want to keep doing more of these if you want me to or something else if you'd rather have a different format. Um, Justin, so for folks that are um, engaged on this topic, um, excited from what you've just described here, um, would like to learn more uh, and specifically follow you and your work, um, where should they go and, and tell them a little bit about what you do at your publication? Sure. Um, I can be found at uraniuminsider.com. Um, we basically cover the sector thoroughly. Our 100% focus is uh, nuclear energy and uranium mining stocks and the investing case for both. Um, I've been doing this since August of 2019. We've almost 4X'd our original investment during that time and outperformed the benchmark significantly during that time. Um, but we, we cover very in-depth the macro. We put out a monthly newsletter that's 30 to 40 pages. We do a monthly members-only webinar where we talk with uh, industry folks, industry professionals, and some of our industry contacts on a monthly basis. And then, of course, we put out email bulletins with trade alerts. And uh, it's, it's been a fantastic experience. We expect this market could go for another few years and then some. It could very well be kind of a commodity super cycle. Um, interestingly enough, if you look at the commodity space and how commodities have traded, generally speaking, over the past six to 12 months in an expected kind of deflationary environment uh, and expected recession, which is basically 100% consensus at this point. Look at the price of uranium. It's, it's very, very insulated from economic effects of recession. And that has to do everything with uh, inventories that nuclear utilities build, the long lead time from nuclear fuel, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm also on Twitter. Uh, I'm don't, not spending as much time there over the past year or so. I've been focusing more on, on servicing our members and putting out daily content. I would do a daily market update video just about every day for our paying members as well. 
Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a very, very exciting uh, investing space. It's a feel-good investment. The case for higher price uranium is, is very simple and very easy to understand. But the, the industry in the market is extremely complex. And that's essentially what we focus most of our energy on is distilling information that comes to us on a daily and weekly and monthly basis into what it means for you as an investor and making sure that our members understand where this market is and where it's going. That's our primary focus. And I think we do a pretty good job of that. We have a very high retention rate for our members. Um, I want to give a quick plug for my friend Art Hyde from Segra Capital. We talked a lot about SMRs today, and they have written a, a brilliant blog piece. They wrote that six or eight months ago. Uh, if you go and Google search Segra uh, Advanced Nuclear Fuel Cycle, the piece is called We Can Work It Out. And they always, they always use a, a Beatles song in their titles of their blog posts. I, I'm just huh. realizing that. But um, this, they, go, they go pretty deep in, in relatively readable and shorter format <clears throat> into the implications of SMRs and the demand that can be expected uh, possibly coming from this industry. They're very heavily uh, into this industry. They have a, a, a private fund that's focused on, on nuclear opportunities and, uh, and small modular reactors, advanced reactors that's separate from their, <clears throat> from their fund that's focused on uranium mining stocks. Um, so yeah, these guys do great work. And that blog post is, is a must read if you wanna know more about SMRs, especially when it comes to the investing implications. All right. Great for sharing. Thanks so much for sharing that. Um, two quick uh, things as we wrap up here. One is just to remind folks that uh, you will be speaking uh, uh, at the Wealthy On online conference on Saturday, October 21st. Uh, we're going to have a, a, a two-party panel. We're going to have Doomberg and you. Uh, we'll talk with Doomberg first sort of about the general state of energy across all major fuel sources around the world. Um, but then we'll get into more specifics on uh, the, what's happening in the nuclear energy space. Of course, we're going to be several months ahead of where we are now uh, at, at the time of the conference. Um, Duberg has very particular uh, opinions uh, and strong opinions about nuclear. Uh, they're mirror a lot of yours. So I think it's going to be a really interesting and lively discussion, uh, very educational for folks. So just wanted to make folks make sure folks keep that on their, their calendars. Um, secondly, uh, there was a question here uh, that I'm going to try to pull up real quick. Um, uh, just talk to the spirit of it. Um, I know that folks should be going and reading your material and listening to uh, the specific picks that you make in the space. But I think a lot of people are probably thinking this, hey, the uranium miners, they're approaching the July low. Should I wait for lower lows to come? Um, or, you know, essentially, is this a good time to sort of start gaining exposure to the space? Do you have just sort of a general perspective? Short-term expectations are very, very difficult in this market. Um, I can just say what we tell our members on a monthly basis. We put it in every single newsletter, which is uh, make a rational allocation to the sector, enter into positions over multiple tranches over at least multiple weeks, if not multiple months. <clears throat> That's critical. Um, at this point in time, we also recommend against using margin and leverage. The sector will punch above its weight when the, when the sector runs. So you don't need to be overweight, especially don't be overweight in any particular name. Diversification is important, especially if you're investing in the miners. <clears throat> um, I would say right now is kind of an interesting point because we have an arguably overbought broad market that has been melting up and, and just absolutely crushing the shorts, uh, uh, melting up and climbing a wall of worry over the past couple of months that looks like it's got some airspace below it. 
Um, and if that drops in the next, let's say four to eight weeks, our uranium stocks are probably going to get hit as well. So that could present an opportunity. We are leading into what is usually a strong season for uranium. Typically the summertime is very slow. So the fact that we've seen, um, you know, a 20 to 20 to 30% move up from March to now, um, is, is kind of different from a typical year. Usually that's a period of time of, of a pulling back for the sector and for the price of uranium. And we've seen the price of uranium stay very, very stable. Six months ago, uh, I said 50 bucks was the floor. I think 55 is the floor now. And this is going to go higher. Um, <clears throat> people that work in the industry that are not myself are expecting the price to have a decent jump by the end of the year. I'm not making any price predictions, but I do believe it is going to head higher before the end of the year. We have two, uh, two primary things that influence or probably multiple than more than that, but two primary things to influence what is typically a strong season for uranium, which is one, the WNA conference in London in early September. Um, every two years, they put out something called the nuclear fuel report <clears throat> where they, they actually do their own modeling that goes out uh, like to 2040. And they have lower reference and uppercase scenarios based on a number of different assumptions. There's a dozen people working on these models. They all work together on the supply side and the demand side. And that report is something the industry waits for and waits to see uh, with bated breath every two years. This, uh, this uh, conference, I think, is going to be an important one because of what's happening in the world, because of not only just this resurgence of nuclear we've been talking about for the past hour and a half, but uh, this bifurcated market and the challenges in the fuel cycle and the expected contracting cycle that's just starting. Utilities are very active and they're, they're, um, they're certainly waking up to some supply realities that are pending. Um, so that conference is a big catalyst. And then you have just generally nuclear fuel buyers for utilities coming back from their summer vacations, going to this conference, going to the NEI conference in October, which actually is happening the day after our, our chat with Doomberg. Um, and then they, they typically will come to the table. We think this year is going to be more robust than most. It doesn't happen every year, but we're moving into that part of the year. And generally speaking, I think dips that are granted to us by factors that have nothing to do with this sector. So if the S&P sells off 10% in the next eight weeks, that has nothing to do with uranium, but it's going to gift you with a lower entry price. So I would not go all in at this point, but I might buy a tranche just to have a seat at the table and I would keep some cash. Um, you can also hedge by shorting if you do end up going in in size. But uh, yeah, hard, hard to really say. I don't really know what to expect in the short term, I guess, long answer short. But uh, the long term is pretty darn clear. Um, we're basically just betting, you know, we're, we're fully long in our, in our uranium allocated portfolio. And uh, we expect higher prices and that's going to happen soon. And we plan to be holding uh, for the most part. Obviously, there'll be some trading in and out, but we, we expect to be mostly long or entirely long for a number of years. Um, and that depends on various factors, capital flows, the buying of physical by financial entities or not, that will have an, an effect on the trajectory of this trade. But yeah, for the most part, expect to be in this market for at least two or three years, possibly more. Expect immense volatility, enter in tranches, keep your eye on the physical market as much as you can, understand it, uh, read as much as you possibly can about the nuclear fuel cycle and the physical market, because that's going to tell you where the market is going. Generally speaking, equities follow the physical. Of course, there's exceptions to that huge swings like we're seeing now. Uh, but um, I think the miners offer an incredible value uh, proposition right now because they've been uh, hit with this consolidation over the past 18 months while the use case and the, and the investing case for nuclear and uranium mining stocks has never been better. 
the, the commodity is holding up extremely well. So compared to the metal, the mining stocks actually are back to valuations uh, similar to what they were before we even saw the first leg up compared wow. to the metal itself. Yeah. So big value proposition in, in my personal opinion. All right. All right. Well, really well said. And folks, again, if you want to continue to follow this space, uh, go to uraniuminsider.com and consider subscribing to Justin's excellent services there. Um, if you've enjoyed this discussion, would like to see Justin come back on um, and see us do other live events like this where we take user Q&A, uh, please let us know by supporting this channel by hitting the like button then clicking on the red subscribe button below as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And again, if you're investing in, uh, decide to invest in, in uh, nuclear stocks, um, we always encourage people, especially when investing in a new sector that you're, you're unfamiliar with, uh, to do so when you can, following the guidance of a good professional financial advisor, one who understands you, your needs, your risk tolerance, your life goals, all that stuff, can put together a personalized plan for you and then help you execute that plan. If you've got a good one, great, stick with them. If you don't, consider talking to one of the ones that Wealthion endorses to do that. Just go fill out the short form at Wealthion.com. You'll see the URL right there on the screen. Um, Justin, again, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the program. Uh, looking forward to doing this again soon and looking forward to seeing you here again live at the Wealthion conference on Saturday, October 21st. I can't wait. I'm so I'm so happy you invited me. Uh, Doomberg is one of my favorite speakers and thinkers. Uh, he's like a brother from another mother. Uh, I love his perspectives. He was our guest, our, our members webinar guest in July. Um, so we had a fantastic conversation. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah. All right. Great. All right, Justin, thanks so much again for joining us uh, so early this morning. Everyone else, thanks so much for watching.